everyone from the King of Malaysia to the Kings of Leon love staying in this suite at London's Connaught Hotel. Welcome to House Guest with me, Carol Annett, Interiors Editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. Here I chat to those clever creatives behind the houses, hotels and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. Guests include interior designers and architects, as well as celebrities dipping their toe into the world of decorating. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be sitting with Guy Oliver in the office in Conduit. Are we Bruton or Conduit? Conduit Street. Conduit, yeah. just near Bruton. Conduit and Street, the Queen used to call it. Is it? Yeah, Conduit Street. Conduit Street. That's <laughs> much better. Um, Guy is Managing Director of Oliver Laws and Principal Designer. And I have known him for a very long time. And we're going to be talking about the luxury hotels that he works on, in particular the Shelburne in Dublin and the Connaught in Mayfair, and how he manages to maintain that X factor in these magnificent, iconic places. Thank you. How long have you been at Ol- Because you are, because you, you and David Laws, wasn't it? Yeah, so David Laws founded the company 37 years ago. Yeah. And he was a partner at Corbett and Fowler, and he kind of came out and broke out on his own, and he was working on the state rooms at Downing Street and uh, he sort of moved off and uh, I think there was some spat in the boardroom and he started on his own and I met him gosh late 90s and he was looking for someone to come into his business and assist and then eventually take over and there were four of me before me and they couldn't deal with his mercurial character and um they literally, the most famous one is a chap called Adam Sykes, who owns Claremont. And Adam was an assistant here. And he told me about this job and he said, I don't know if I should tell you about this. And famously, Adam went out for a sandwich at lunchtime and didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I was used to eccentric characters. And I think with David Laws, he was no more difficult than the average admiral or captain or my my parents i mean they yeah. were they were very challenging characters and i i think david whatever david threw at me was like water up a dax back and he literally used to throw things at me so um like a glass or an ashtray or whatever it was whatever it was at the time you'd aim it not to hit but it would sort of be some there'd be some melodramatic example of his displeasure um, it's not it's not quite the way that you imagine life in the luxury you know designing for luxury properties is yeah, it's behind the scenes. I mean, the funny thing about someone like David was he was somewhat grander than his clients, which of course, because he came from he came from a sort of blue collar background and he worked in the theater and being, you know, being a gay man in the 50s and 60s and then having to sort of find his way. At that time, it was a sort of way of making a sort of classless society because whether you were a grand person or somebody, you know, the dustman, you were all ostracized at that time. So there was this equalizing element by your sexuality and so David met someone called Tom Parr who was a director at Colbert and Fowler and he gave him his first break and then eventually David became the director of the, of the company and I guess because he'd worked in the theatre he knew how to deal with the clients so I think with wealthy clients um, or high profile clients it's about being confident with them and making them feel comfortable and relaxed. And, you know, I had the Navy to teach me how to do that. They taught me how to meet a head of state or a wealthy guest on the ship or whatever it was, or work with members of the royal family. That was all part of my day-to-day life. And I think when you learn to be comfortable with yourself and with who you are, and then you're very much more comfortable with people that you're working with. And 
they like that because a good deal of you know this job is is making feel, people feel comfortable about what they're doing. So. And how long have you been working on the Connaught? <laughs> so the Connaught originally I, they came to talk to me in two thousand and seven. Who owns it now? It belongs to um, a member of the Qatari ruling family. So Hassan bin Jasser, I think, is the owning owner. And it was previously an Irish group. And before that, it was Blackstone. And I guess that's all, you know, that's up there. And um, the hotels continue as they are. They have a character and a DNA that, that continues on, regardless of the ownership. But yeah. the nice, the thing about luxury hotels is, you know, that usually when there's a change of ownership, there's an investment in, in the property. And, and hotels talk about FF&E cycles, which is a set, supposedly seven-year lifestyle of the interior, the lifespan of the interior is, is seven years. And although obviously it gets pushed. Um, and if you do something of quality, it lasts longer. So ironically, I've just been asked back to look at some suites at the hotel, but they're 14 years old now. And because we did them, I think, beautifully and with great quality at the beginning with and because they maintain them so well, it's basically more of a refresh about keeping them current with current taste. And, and when you say current taste, because mm-hmm. presumably you're not making massive changes because that would upset the yeah. clientele and, the, and it wouldn't be what, what the hotel is all about. But, you know, with a grand dam like the Connaught, I mean, when you say updating, are you, you know, are you changing the wallpaper, are you putting in some more modern furniture? We we did the big works, the heavy works in 2007, so bringing the rooms back to what they were. They were these 1890s interiors that were referencing an Adam interior of 100 years previously, so there's always these cycles of taste. So in the 1890s, they were referencing the 1790s, and so these grand drawing rooms and these grand bedrooms in the hotel were these neo-Adam interiors. And a lot of the rooms got subdivided after the war because there was a move afoot. Um, the government paid you a thousand pounds of key grant in the 50s and 60s to subdivide hotels because there was a shortage of hotels after the Second World War. And the Connaught didn't really fit into that mold, but there was an element of that. And what we did in the first round of refurbishment in 2007 was open up the suites again. So some of the big suites have been subdivided. So the drawing room became a bedroom, a bathroom, and a dressing lobby or whatever. And we took them back because there was more of a demand. You know, the, the Connaught, for, for a number of reasons, is very desirable as a hotel. It's its location, which is 100%, you know, in, in the A1 location and everything has come around it. But also the character and the nature of it. And because there's only 130 rooms there, it has a limited capacity and people want to be in this place, which is in the middle of, you know, LVMH's empire at the moment because they open all those shops around it. And it's a sort of, it's a neighbourhood that's, when I first started working at Connaught, it was a very quiet neighbourhood. There weren't really the kind of shops that are there now. And the refurbishment of the Connaught, because we did external works and we created the piazza outside and did the conservatory on the outside of the building and, and started using the streetscape, which is, you know, as the as the climate's changed, is more important, you know, it's more like Italy. Now, if you go outside today, it feels like you're in an Italian piazza. So putting in the Tadao Ando fountain outside the Connaught and, you know, creating public space because the building starts with the view of it, not when you walk through the lobby or over the threshold. It is the exterior as well and the identity of the building. So the Connaught's quite key to Mayfair. And I think other people try and mimic it, but nothing quite comes close. And I think the other element about it was because it's, it's a sort of a time capsule 
It was built by someone called Sir Blundell Maple, who was Maple's wearing in Gillow's department store. And they made furniture for the empire. And fortunately, when I came along, it still had everything left. left. And the, the shelving was the opposite. Everything had gone. They, someone had taken all the original antiques and taken out a lot of the original art. So with the shelving, it was about trying to recreate the sense of history. With the Connor, it was editing the history and creating it and not making it feel like a museum. So anyway. But interestingly, in in the Connaught, the actual, I mean, yes, you walk into the entrance hall, but it doesn't have a grand entrance. It has quite a small, you know, there's a staircase and the, you know, and it's actually quite dark. And then there's a little reception area. Has that ever sort of bothered you that you didn't want to kind of open it out? Well, so funny, the funny thing about the Connaught, it was, I, I suppose you would see this now, what I'm about to tell you. Um, Ralph Lauren's entire identity for his interiors came from the Connaught. So they saw that as quintessentially English. So if you ever go to what they all call the mansion um, in New York, um, which is the Ralph Lauren store, and you look at the balustrading on the staircase of the Connaught, and you look at the balustrading on the staircase in the mansion, they're the same. And that identity, that dark wood, is seen as sort of quintessentially English by some people. I find that sometimes a bit oppressive. So what we did was where there was wall space on the upper levels, we used block, I used block colour. So there's actually a corn yellow, which is used above the mahogany panel, which gives it immediately, there's no pattern on the walls, it's just a block of colour, but it gives it a fresher take for the interior. And then I had this carpet design, which was a sort of Venetian 19th century carpet that I, I made bigger the scale. And it's just been remade again because people love it. It's a sort of it looks a bit like a, a modern take on a traditional carpet, and it's it, it works really well because you've got this sort of block colour, the traditional wood, and above the, the ground floor level, it sort of becomes lighter when you go up there. And the ground floor reception, I always feel is a bit like an English club or yeah. more like a, perhaps a townhouse. And the Connaught was always where people started and finished trips abroad. So there was always that thing, where, or when they went hunting. So there's a gun room in the hotel. Is there? Yeah. So we, you know, people keep their shotguns in the you ocean. Know, maybe you shouldn't be telling me that. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm it's, sure it won't go. It's, a, it's locked. It's, they're locked up in a gun safe in a gun room. And, you know, so people were able to go and do a season or go shooting or come into town for a dinner and they go, you know, and it, it, the whole thing is designed about, about feeling like your London home, basically. And originally, you had to be on a list to go to the Connaught. You weren't, really? yeah, you weren't allowed to just sort of book a room. And it was very exclusive as a sort of hotel. You had to be referred by one of the people that stayed there. And, you know, any, anyway, but the people who were rich in the 19th century became the new book poor in the 20th century. And they started having to find a new market. So they got, got refurbished. And I think the reason why people go there, it's not my favorite period. Late 19th century to me is quite, quite heavy, but... I hope what I've done is I've mixed with the art and with the other elements that are in the hotel is it's made it feel more like a home and the atmosphere is, people aren't quite sure why they like it, but it feels comfortable when you're there. And so that that to me is the identity of the hotel. And it's more like a house, a home, a grand home than a, than a hotel. And so the Shelburne, is that an ongoing role that you have yeah. there? So I work for the owner who, um, so the hotel, was made much bigger by the previous owners and it was originally a hundred room hotel now it's 240 rooms and that has a an impact on the historical part of the hotel and a lobby that was built to service 100 rooms has suddenly 
can't service 250 rooms, 230 rooms. So there was some alterations done badly in the past. And what I had to do was unpick some of that and help try and make sense of, of the, the public space in the hotel. And so we did a, the public works and the facade of the building were, were restored originally. And now we're rolling through into the, the rest of the rooms. In the hotel. And when you say make sense of the public space, how does that manifest itself in your job? So it's partly the identity. So the hotel is, I think I mentioned to you before when we were recording that it's, it, to me, it's like Ireland's drawing room more. Yeah. And it's the sort of centre, to a certain extent, everybody in Ireland knows the shelter. Yeah. And they know it for different reasons. It was the where the Irish Constitution was drafted in 1921 and 1922. It's also where the English army had been there previously. And there was the Easter uprising in 1916. And when we were restoring the facade, there were bullet holes in the, in the side really? of the building. Wow. So, I mean, to me, I'm Irish, I'm Scots-Irish. And I was so happy to be asked to be working on this project. And... There was some discussion about what the character of the hotel should be. And I said, well, it's quintessentially about Ireland. And this is a story we need to tell. And that needs to reflect itself in the art and the anything to do with, with the period of the hotel. So for the past five years, I've been trying to reinforce the identity of the Shelburne as Ireland's Grand Hotel. And there are other hotels in, in Dublin which are you know, luxury hotels. But this, to me, is about the nation and it's it's about its place in history and you know the creation of the irish free state and ireland as a nation came through the shelburne and so to me that's very much part of its character and and when you go there i, I always think it's great fun being there at christmas because you'll see you know bono and gabriel Byrne and all of those those famous people edna o'brien you know all these characters and then you also see the farmer and his wife from county mayo who are coming up to go shopping at brown thomas and they, they want to stay in the Shelburne or have tea there and, you know, and have a treat. And it still retains that, kind of, there's kind of an innocence to that as well, which I like about Ireland. There's no pretension to it and everybody's mixed together <laughs> and they all go through the front, you know, that revolving door, they all go through that. And it's also the location is right next to where, you know, St. Stephen's Green, where the Easter uprising was. So it's very central to the DNA of the nation and it's right next to the T-Soft office and, Parliament. So it's really in the middle of everything. And, and that's kind of a unique thing about that hotel. So tell me about your, you do an, a massive amount of philanthropy and there's a connection there with the Connaught and something that you're working on at the moment. So tell us about that. Okay. So in 2007, I started working with Rory Stewart in Afghanistan, actually earlier than that, 2004. But I was going out to Afghanistan with him with some funding that came from a private donor to restore. So, and he, Rory, ex-journalist turned MP, I can't remember uh, what no, he was, <laughs> Depends on which story you're reading. What's his official, official background? Line, goodness. Uh, so Rory, he wrote a book called My Time Governing in Iraq, which was, he was involved with, he was working in the Foreign Office at the time. Okay. And then he decided to walk across Afghanistan and he wrote a book called The Places in Between. Yeah, I think that's what I kind of remember him mostly yeah. for. Yeah, for that's the, the one that's the... Media of the back of the And that book is in the manner of Eric Newby's A Short Walk in the Indie Kush or uh, Robert Byron wrote something called The Road to Oxiana. And it's that kind of travelogue, adventure travelogue, which is in the in the manner of a 19th century explorer, which is, I would have said, was Rory's modelling of his personality. But then he went into politics afterwards, of course, and that was, um, you know, and then left earlier than the current bunch jumped off. And 
He ran for mayor, which oh, I that's helped. That's right. Yeah, he was running as an independent. I helped him a little with that. Yeah. And, but then unfortunately ducked out because of COVID. And I think he had a good shot, actually, to be honest, but uh, because of the system, which is the alternative vote system. So, so, so Rory has a strong affinity to for Afghanistan. Yeah, I think I think um, broadly speaking, in the nineteenth century, that would have been called Orientalism. So it's that idea of the romantic Orient in the Middle East, the Mono Orient, as the French say. And you've got this romance of you know the Arabian Nights and all those sort of things, and it's about adventure and the great game in the nineteenth century between the the empires and between Russia and the British Empire and so. On. And there's there's all these characters that come out of it, uh, Lawrence T. Lawrence, and you know these flashmen and all these ideas of you know adventure. In London, I was introduced to him not far from here, and a friend of mine had, had been doing work with orphans in Afghanistan, and Prince of Wales was keen to do something to help, and Rory volunteered to go out to Kabul, and I flew out with him quite early on, and one of my clients was very generous and gave funding and underwrote some restoration work in central Kabul of an historic district called Nurakani, which is in the right by the Kabul River. And when we were doing that, we thought we've got all these artisans that are coming in to, to restore these buildings. And a lot of them had been, they were part of the diaspora that had returned to Afghanistan after the, the war, inverted commas, the ongoing war. And they, these guys were working in the market and whatever. We found these master carvers and we got them to train others. And then we thought, well, we might as well create some kind of legacy there. So City and Guilds came out from the UK, set up an accredited, accredited course structure. And so young Afghans will get paid because they're, you know, it's a, it's a poor country. So children are assets. So we, if they applied for places on the course, we needed to be able to pay them. It's only $50 a month, but it's enough to support them. And they would go into a foundation year and then choose a discipline for three years, which would be wood carving, jewelry, paper small works on the, the jewelry I was working with, the wood carving, uh, miniature painting, calligraphy, and tile making and pottery. And then after three years, they if they graduate, they then get placed within a, a master and they get an apprenticeship and then they get a business loan. And during that period, they're also learning English, English literacy skills, computer skills, and all that sort of thing. So they can create their own businesses. And you know, Confucius says it's better to teach someone how to fish than to give them a fish. And that's exactly what we did was a philosophy. And it's a long-term investment because from soup to nuts, it's seven years from the beginning of the program until they sort of graduate. But what, the nice thing about it was it's seen as something that's helping to reinforce the indigenous culture. So we're still operating in Afghanistan and now doing a second suite of the Connaught Hotel. So the, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when I started working with Connaught more. 12, 14 years ago, the chief executive said to me, I wanted to do this Afghan suite. And he said, why are you doing an ethics suite in a luxury Mayfair hotel? And I said, well, it's in the 19th century, in the 18th century, people did a grand tour and they collected the architectural elements. And I said, this is like a home. The Connaught is like somebody's home in London. And we're collecting a room that we're creating. And of course, it became one of the most popular suites in the hotel. I had to sign a release saying I'd pay for it if it went wrong. Did you? <laughs> Um, which is a courtesy of the CEO. And then uh, when you've got no money, it's easy to sign those things. But, <laughs> but, and then uh, I had to get a friend in the Air Force to fly it out on an empty Hercules plane. And it came to RAF Line and uh, we had Irish shop fitters who picked it up from the Air Force base and we took it to London, fitted out the room. 
And it became, it resonated with people. So everyone from the King of Malaysia to the Kings of Leon love staying in this room. And they, uh, hotel, have a very nice relationship that they give a percentage of the profit to the charity. So there's oh, this nice. relationship yeah. there. And now we're building a second one. So there's another one which will be open in Easter next year. And have you got all the artifacts for that or are they being crafted as we speak? They're all being made. So we've got, it's a more romantic room in some ways because it's a more feminine sort of look. And we're having sort of miniature, it's referring to the Mughal, um, more the Mughal influence. So um, Afghanistan was part of the Mughal empire. And um, you've got a fantastic park in the middle of Kabul called Babur's Gardens. And there's a little mosque, um, which is a sort of memorial to Shah Jahan, who's also buried in the gardens. And so that informs the uh, aesthetic of the room. And then we've got these wonderful miniature painters who are creating these miniature paintings that go, they're going to be set into the panelling that's in the room. So hopefully it will be magical in its own little way. And hopefully people respond to it in the same way they did to the other one. How wonderful. <clears throat> and when, so when's that going to be complete? Uh, it should be Easter next year. So we're going to go, it's all start. the carving started. So I'm going out to Kabul in October. There's carpets being woven for it, fabric being woven for it, <laughs> miniature paintings being made, uh, the carving details, all of those elements, they're all being made. And there's a marble panel going into the bathroom, which is being carved at the moment, the Tree of Life detail. Um, so it's all going to be layered into, I think this profession is a bit like conducting an orchestra. You have to keep your eye on the, uh, music and make sure that people hear something that's coherent or see something that's coherent but there's lots of moving parts and I make my life more complicated than most people I think with all the moving parts but it's nice to bring them together and create a coherent whole and then if people don't notice anything that's wrong then you've done the job <laughs> <laughs> which is the challenge anyway but, um, yeah so is that taking up most of your time at the moment uh, no it's part of it I mean, there's, there's all sorts of other things. So Museum of London, a little bit. Um, been involved with that for a while. The Prince of Wales agreed to be patron of the museum. So we've, we've just closed out the capital campaign for that, which is great. We're closing it out and there's the last little bit of fundraising and we're discussing the next phase. I'm hoping that the Academy of St. Martin's in the fields, there's an orchestra that needs a rehearsal space. So we're talking about potentially the lecture theatre might become a rehearsal space as well. So the museum is a living part of the community in that area and will not just be a museum, it will be part of a community. And that's the same with these hotel palace. You know, it's all about community identity and being integrated into a neighbourhood. And um, I volunteer for these things because it's nice for me. I do things I enjoy and um, they, you know, it's a way of, of giving back, which my mother pleases me. <laughs> <laughs> And I have to say, you have uh, yours is one of my favourite Instagrams because you have little special places in London or little things or insignias or bits of buildings or mm. just things that you don't, you know, ordinarily wouldn't notice. And you sort of remind us actually what an amazing um, city that we have here. There's so much. If you look up, you know, when you're walking around Mayfair and James, Piccadilly, Regent Street, anyway, look up, look up and see the details. And you know, where can you find the, a Buddhist sculpture in the middle of? London on oh, Regent Street. Yeah, it's on the first <laughs> floor of the old Liberty Building that was on Regent Street. The, the original Liberty Building is behind this building. And when it expanded, they had this stone edifice, which is on Regent Street between Conduits and Oxford Street. 
And on the east side of Regent Street, if you look up, there's a series of bullets sitting there. Who knew? And then on the left-hand side, if you look at the Apple store and you see the mosaic, it was obviously the headquarters of a, of a great shipping company or something. And you see the names St. Petersburg and, you know, Kutz uh, and all these strange places written across the facade in mosaic. I guarantee people going into Apple store have no idea no, they're looking their at their phones. And there's a Venetian palace above them. If they look out, they can see that. And it's it's magical that it's, it's there. And yeah. and then, you know, my story the other day was, I, mean, I had a, we had a bereavement recently in the family and I wanted to go, I typically deal with things by sort of, you know, becoming a bit more insular. And I went to the Curzon on Sunday afternoon. And that to me is one of the best places. If you want to be on your own, you know, you can sit and watch, watch a movie. And there was a film about Eric Revillius, who to me is one of, you know, Britain's quietly one of its best, best British artists. And it's a period of art that I liked, that interwar period, between, you know, between the First and Second World War, not between whatever war we're at at the moment. And it's just magically made. There was a woman called Margie Kinman who made it, and she made it during the COVID period. <laughs> and she obviously focused on it for two years. And it's so beautifully detailed. They've animated Revillius's drawings and they tell this story with his family and with photography and film and, and animation. And it, it's just the most exquisite little perfect. memorial to Rubidius. So you need perfect to Sunday afternoon movie. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Guy, thank you so much. It's always an absolute delight talking to you. And um, I learned so much, not least not to have my nose in my phone as I'm walking around. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. If you'd like to have more Interiors Inspiration, take a look at countryandtownhouse.co.uk where you can also sign up to our monthly online Interiors newsletter. And if you're flying anywhere soon, you can also listen on British Airways in-flight entertainment.